Good afternoon. Welcome to the National Rural Education Association podcast, All Things Rural, the Rural Voice. We are excited to be back to record an episode in May, the closeout of May. And uh, with me today, we, of course, have our producer and our lovely, I guess he would call lecturer slash IT guy slash producer slash social distance monitor, Dr. Chris Silver. <laughs> I'll take and it. You'll take it. And then we also have Dr. Jared Bigham, who's coming to us live from downtown Turtletown, Tennessee. If you don't know where it's at, hit Google Maps, you'll find it. It's very exciting. And uh, need to visit Turtletown. So, Dr. Bigham, I will let you introduce our guest today and take it away. Awesome. Thanks, Alan. And uh, yeah, anyone that wants the Turtletown experience, just look for that uh, greater Copper Basin metropolitan area that's got Turtletown, Ducktown, Copper Hill, all those um, animal animal towns in southeast Tennessee. <laughs> and we are very excited to have uh, Tennessee's Commissioner of Education, Dr. Penny Schwinn, is with us today. And uh, Commissioner, I know, you're, is this going into your second full year that you've been in Tennessee? Yes, sir. So it's, I think it's month 15. All right. So <laughs> yeah. you do. So uh, uh, I know some of the questions we'll talk about um, are going to be district specific, but we'll probably end up spending a lot of time on the statewide perspective. So do you want to give us just the, the quick overview of your background and how you ended up in Tennessee and then We'll start papering you with harder questions. <laughs> yeah, happy to. Um, so I um, I hail from um, just outside of Sacramento um, as the daughter of a school teacher and a police officer. And so as as much as I tried to get out of education, um, I think growing up in my mom's classrooms, uh, I was always destined to come back. But um, I was a I was a high school teacher, um, teacher coach. I was an elementary school principal, and I've got to say, um, kindergartners and seniors are very, very similar creatures, um, but love the little ones. Um, and then uh, in, in the district where I grew up, ended up being an assistant superintendent um, for Sac City Unified before moving to state work. Um, so I was an assistant secretary in, uh, of education in Delaware and then the chief deputy commissioner um, in Texas um, before coming over to Tennessee. And that was the easiest decision ever. I will say that um, if I'm going full circle, and there's lots of kind of going to school and in, in, in all that. But I'm very proud now to um, be the parent of three children. So um, people say, what's the best thing about Tennessee? Um, and I said, well, um, post November 12th, the best thing about Tennessee is, is my new son, Jack. So we adopted Jack out of West Tennessee in November. So um, some, so I feel like I got the fast track to become a, a Tennessee in that way. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, and and, and I, I can relate to growing up in a parent's classroom because my dad was a, a teacher and a principal and um, a teaching principal at one time and so I mm -hmm. I was in the school uh, Monday through Fridays and then Sundays he was a choir director so I was either in a school or a church pretty much my whole <laughs> childhood and I could get away with nothing as it sounds like I'm sure you were not able to get away with <laughs> anything with a, a teacher and a, a police officer for parents. That's right. <laughs> and, I, and I also uh, agree with elementary principal that was probably the most fun I've had in education because those kids, um, you know, you could you could get on to them in the morning if they got in trouble and they're still wanting to hug you as they leave that <laughs> afternoon before they get on the bus. But high schoolers, they, they tend to hold a grudge uh, quite a bit longer. And, and instead of the hugs, they're usually hiding where they're flipping you off getting on the bus. So uh, right. elementary was my favorite. 
<laughs> That's right. You can't you can't beat it. They are just uh, they they just love on you all day, and it, and it's the it's the only time I think in your life where you will feel like a superstar twenty four hours a day when you're with your when you're with your uh, elementary school kiddos. They just yeah. think you're everything. And and so you've got a a pretty diverse background from across the country. Is there anything distinctive about rural Tennessee that's made an impression on you so far? I know you visited uh, a ton of rural districts in the mm -hmm. time you've been here. So um, what what initial impressions do you have of rural Tennessee, maybe in comparison to some of the other places you've worked? Yeah, so um, I've, I've been to, I think at this point, 90, of the, um, 90 counties. So I'm just a few short, um, but you know, it is, it is so unique. Um, where I grew up in California, it, it's certainly um, not like what you think with California. So it's Central Valley. Um, they called us, where I'm from, they call us Cowtown, California. Um, and, and same thing with Texas, where there's a lot of rural districts. But there's something very unique and special about rural Tennessee. And, and I, I would say that everywhere I go, the first question that I get asked is, how's your family? How are your kids? Um, and while that seems, I think, probably pretty normal um, for a lot of folks, that is not that has not been my experience um, anywhere else in the country. It is a place that is very firmly rooted in the value and importance of family um, and children and community. And so um, I've been, um, in a lot of cases, very moved, actually, um, when I've been able to visit classrooms and people want to make sure that my family's taken care of and that my kids are okay um, before we get to the business of work. And I think that value system is very aligned with how I was raised. Um, and I think something that is overwhelming across the state. And it, it's reflected in, frankly, every decision that I see made um, within our district. So it's, it's, it's a really special part of Tennessee um, that I, I really, really love. Yeah, great. Um, Pratt, I know we've talked about um, some of the things as a state and then nationally, some rural policy issues. What? I know you've got some burning questions uh, <laughs> and maybe give some perspective for uh, from other states and uh, their situation so 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 for you know obviously following a lot of the legislative stuff coming out of dc and the cares act and then possibly the heroes act coming forward what are you hearing from rural districts in tennessee on their plans or ideas on how they're going to use some of the funding or have you, what are you hearing back from the rural districts yeah, so it's um, it's remarkably consistent, and I think that just speaks to the needs that that we have as a state, but certainly in our rural communities. So, um, you know, first and foremost, I think we're all hearing about technology and access. Um, I think that there was a real conversation around um, what some kids had opportunities to be able to do during these school closures that other kids didn't because they didn't have access to broadband or high-speed internet and in some cases and in many cases didn't have access to computers or tablets and so a lot of our rural districts are thinking about you know if we're not going to get broadband in the next few months what can you do to make sure that my kids get the same opportunities as other students um, and I think the other thing that we're hearing about is just the ability to have local services um, I think you know there are so many oftentimes in, in cities local resources and services that are just right there. And I think when they're safer at home measures and school buildings are closed, we forget that a lot of times that school building is the social hub and a lot of times the heart and soul of a community. Um, and so when they're not open, uh, it makes it really hard in a lot of other aspects. And so schools have really been talking about 
how do we find connections with one another um, and what does that look like for school reopening so services that can be done online um, investing in food programs for kids and then some of the uh, mental health and um, nutritional health needs of, of their communities yeah, I think you hit a good point about the, the hub of the community, the rural schools. And I think that people, you know, I think we are, everyone's talking about the new normal or get yeah. back to normal. We know there's not going to be get back to where we were. Uh, so when you're looking in the fall, and I'm not asking you to make a prediction on anything, I'm just thinking as the Department of Ed's looking for fall start, um, what are you kind of feeling and sensing out there about maybe a timetable or and or maybe uh, some of these change or modified schedules that, that you're maybe hearing about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, for reopening, you know, we've heard a lot about there's the you can be back in the physical building, you can be totally virtual or some combination of both, whether that's all year or intermittent. And I think that what we are finding is that there are lots of options even within that. So um, many of our, especially our rural communities where frankly, because of just the population spread and the way that they're situated, they haven't been hit. And as a state, we have not been hit by the virus in the same way that I think we are seeing, especially in the Northeast and some of our deep South partners uh, states. Um, Tennessee, there are a lot of communities where it just the spread hasn't been there. We've, uh, and I think that's um, a testament to a lot of the hard work of, of people um, on the front lines and essential workers. But um, many of our districts are thinking about opening up in physical spaces and using social distancing mechanisms like spacing of desks um, staggering school schedules in a couple of cases, potentially looking at staggered tracks for a year round schedule. So there are fewer kids in the building. Um, but I think more so in our rural communities than anywhere else, there is a real desire to be back together in person. And again, I think that community element of school is something that um, when people are really thinking about what's possible um, and what's necessary um, to continue life um, as, as we know it, um, whether that's a normal or new normal, um, the school really is the hub there. So we're trying to provide guidance to help districts figure out how to do that safely. Um, and certainly in a way that, that people feel um, supported and health and wellness is prioritized. But most of our rural districts are really thinking about um, just staggering start times, staggering return dates, potentially staggering years, um, but trying to prioritize getting back in buildings um, as quickly as possible. And I think that is, um, that's well said. And I think uh, you're right. It's we're wanting to get back face to face. Um, I, know, I know Jared's probably got another question. I'm going to jump on one more thing, Jared, if you'll give me a little bit more time. You go there. for it, buddy. You go Thank for you so much. Um, one of the things that we're doing at National Rural Ed, one of the things we did this week is we started connecting with some of our international partners. So we're watching Australia right now. We, mm -hmm. We're doing some video calls uh, late night for us and morning for them um, on watching rural principals in Australia because they started school back Monday. Yeah. And um, so – you know, on that same note, I know you're reaching out to other states and all that stuff. So what are you hearing other states or internationally that you can pull in to help Tennessee students about opening back up? Yeah, so um, we are we are doing many of, of kind of I think those similar those similar things here. Um, we have been working with a, a number of organizations to get contact with um, countries. Um, I'm going to be interested in what you say about Australia, um, but we've been looking at some of the practices coming out of Europe. So Germany, um, some of the, the Scandinavian countries, France, how they're thinking about opening up. 
Um, there are a couple of countries in East Asia that are doing things very, very differently. Um, and then uh, we've been looking um, a little bit at Israel uh, specifically because they are prioritizing uh, special populations in their reopening framework and we haven't really seen that. So we, we've been doing that mostly through, there's some webinars, um, people are sharing physical and, and videos of classrooms and students, um, and then certainly looking at how they're making decisions. But something that is um, unique to the United States, frankly, is this idea of local control and options. And one of the things that we're challenged by is many of the models we're looking at are kind of national prescriptive ways of addressing um, a national education system where we are so, um, so driven by states' rights and then certainly local community rights. And so from my perspective as a commissioner, I want to make sure that we are providing that level of differentiated support and personalization to all of our districts because they all have some very, very different needs and really protecting that. Um, because again, when we think about um, a rural county in West Tennessee versus East Tennessee, um, their needs are going to be very, very different in a lot of ways. And we want to make sure that we preserve, I think, what's a real important part of the social element and fabric of, of our public education system. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is so true. Um, and I'll keep you posted on the Australian uh, interaction between rural principles in the, in, in the U.S. and Australia. Yeah. And you're right about local control. That was the first thing that came up on the Australian call is state to state, different and mm -hmm. district, district, and they're, they're government controlled. So, Jared, I'll let you please take over. All right. Thank you. Um, I know about 99% of our conversations um, lately, or at least the Zoom, Zoom conversations I've been having with different folks in the industry sectors and higher ed and K-12, it's very forward looking and trying to plan, trying to figure out logistics on things. But if if we looked back and, and I know hindsight's always 2020, what is something in the past few months that really you felt like caught us the most off guard as educators when all this happened and we we had the new, the new normal uh, and trying to facilitate learning at home so is there anything that you say, man, I wish I had a, a do-over on that or wish we'd had, you know, a little, a, a different approach or something that, and even to that, taking it to that next level of um, what, what caught us off guard? Because I know I've got my opinions on that, on, on things as a parent and an educator, but um, I'd just be interested in your hindsight on, on the way things uh, developed in Tennessee. Yeah, you know, we've been thinking a lot about that, especially as we think about how do we want to invest funds for next year that will put us in a different position. And um, some of the most provocative conversations I've had around this have been with um, some school districts in Florida and in Texas, those districts who close more often due to hurricanes. Um, and one of the things that um, I, I really wanted to better understand their approach because they were able to pivot so quickly but for them, they have to shut down for extended periods of time so regularly that it had just been part of the fabric of how they educate and how they do their emergency planning. So in Tennessee, um, if I could go back in time and let's say even going back a year ago um, and, and think about our strategy, 
Um, one of the things that we weren't able to do is as a state, and then I think most of our districts, when school closures happened on, you know, on a Friday and then Monday morning, we, we aren't opening up again. Um, most of our districts, it took a week or two weeks, and in some cases longer, to operationalize a way to go from having, let's say, 147 districts and just over 1,800 schools. And now we have tens of thousands of mini schools in people's homes across the state. And so even having a platform for online instruction and instructional delivery, even if you had computers and internet, like that wasn't a something we had in place. If we were going to do packets, there weren't operational procedures in place for distributing work, picking up work and grading. And so people were developing that in real time. And it, it didn't allow for consistency and coherence across the state. Um, and I think we were scrambling as a field to be able to catch up and make sure people got what they needed. So if I could go back I would probably spend a lot of time making sure that um, we had a delivery mechanism for instruction, whether that was online or in paper, and that we had a set of instructional resources that we could essentially just roll out to everyone if they wanted to opt to use them um, so that we didn't do so much recreating of the wheel. I think that emergency preparedness from an academic perspective, um, we haven't had the need and necessity in Tennessee like some of the states who have um, more extended closures more regularly. And so we will be much better prepared going into next year with an online platform, with a ton of instructional materials, and then with a lot of operational procedures for people to use if this should, God forbid, ever happen again. Yeah, I yeah, I, go ahead, Jared. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I think that um, one of the things I saw that districts started doing is they tried to do a, a blended uh, instructional model or uh, you know, go completely to a, an online and not have paper, uh, uh, paper pencil packets that they delivered, and it became more about just reviewing content that had already been taught throughout the year versus introducing new concepts. Mm -hmm. And I think that was that was part of the, as I saw it, kind of caught everyone on their heels. Is how do you introduce a lot of times very challenging instructional um, materials that uh, or instruction that needs a lot of one-on-one -on -one with like elementary students or um, a small group type things that with people that went to school to, to actually do this it's hard enough for them when they're sitting at a kidney table with some first graders trying to teach them reading but it's it's a pretty herculean ask of parents to try to facilitate that same instruction in their homes, in their kitchen table and things like that. So I, that's what I kept seeing was that we just kind of, I won't say digressed, but I think it was almost survival mode for a lot of teachers and principals and they were just um, happy to have any kind of platform mm -hmm. that students could access or the equipment. I mean, I saw um, that in a lot of schools, they might have internet in the home and have high speed, but they didn't have the, uh, the proper type of computer or an iPad or something to be able to access it. So it was multifaceted and I think um, we, we definitely couldn't stand much more of that because that's something a lot of new concepts were introduced. I think I, I couldn't agree more on that. And I think, you know, um, I use my own family as, a, as an example. You know, obviously I'm an education, but I, I'm married to an educator. My husband um, does curriculum support and development and instructional coaching. Um, so you would think like we would be able to do the at-home schooling just fine. Um, but I think it's, it's hard because 
you know, teachers are professionals in a classroom and the classroom setting is so different. And then at home you have the housework that you're doing. You have people who have jobs at home. You're trying to educate your kids while you're still their parent. And I think it just, um, it was a lot to put on families. And so I couldn't agree more that um, there's no replacing high quality, effective instruction face-to-face um, -face with kids. There's something about that relationship that is so, so pivotal and crucial and special. So um, yeah, but I, I, I think you're right that um, many parents that I've talked to have said, um, you know, we're glad it's summer, but we are looking forward to next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was telling one of my friends that I, I could control 500 elementary kids or, or 500 high school kids much easier than I've been doing my four kids at home. Um, they, they're not impressed at all by any of my credentials or <laughs> any, any of my classroom experience. That's so true. Somehow it's, it's crazy. You can get 25 year olds to do exactly what you want, but your kids at home, they look at you like you're crazy a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. Alan, I interrupted you a minute ago. No, you didn't. You did. Good. Thank you, sir. So, so there are a couple things that um, kind of want to go through. Uh, I was I was talking to someone in North Dakota last week and uh, on connectivity and some different things like that. And uh, he's and and he's actually been on our podcast, Stephen Johnson. He did our podcast a couple weeks, uh, a couple months ago. And he said, "There's two guarantees now that we know coming out of this that no one can refute." Number one is that education can change rapidly and move rapidly, and we've proven that. And number two, we should never have another snow day ever again. <laughs> so with that being said, what, how do you feel far as connectivity-wise, and I know it's not your wheelhouse, but it is on this end, how do you feel the, the for, and I'll give you from I think rural ed and rural America is going to benefit from this pandemic in the sense of it's it's opened the eyes of people to say hey we're not equal and there's not enough connection and connectivity mm -hmm. so I see that as a positive coming out of this all that being said what do you see these diamonds or diamonds in the rough coming out of this pandemic that can help education in Tennessee I could not agree more um, with what you just said around the inequity uh, that, that we're seeing and we, and we know has been in place um, in rural communities, especially around connectivity. Um, and I think that that's, that's a lot of um, some of these um, diamonds that we are finding. So for example, things that we have always known to be true um, as challenges within education. So um, we know that literacy continues to be a challenge um, and, and people, especially families at home are starting to, to see some of, some of the gaps because um, it's really, really hard to teach a child to read. Um, and so we're seeing that. We're seeing inequities in rural communities, especially when we think about broadband and connectivity, um, access to, to resources. Um, we are seeing some um, real gaps as it relates to uh, mental health and counseling supports that we've seen lots of people are needing, especially um, in the pandemic. And so it's really elevated and accelerated some of the truths that educators and people in the field know, um, but lots of people are now starting to see. So um, I, you know, I, I'm seeing that as a, as a positive. Um, I also think that we are seeing the importance and the value of investing in our people. And, and by that, I mean our educators and our principals. Many of our educators have said, look, you know, I've been in my classroom and, and I know how to do that really, really well. And we keep talking about technology and we keep talking about these innovative components of, of education, but 
the investment in me as a professional to really understand how to do it, um, that's something that would have been nice. And maybe I could have kind of turned around my classroom practices into a digital environment a lot faster. And so I think it's really accelerating some of those conversations and hopefully allowing us to invest um, invest differently. Um, and I think for our rural communities and our, our students living in rural communities, honestly, um, I've been really excited about the way that people are thinking differently um, around what has to be part of uh, a really strong public education um, and thinking about how are we preparing our students, not just to know things, but to be able to do things differently and adapt and be flexible and build skills that are gonna be necessary in their future context, whether that's academic or in their careers. And so I've heard a lot more conversation about the skill building that's happening with students um, because they aren't in school and they're getting into all sorts of mischief in other ways. Um, <laughs> but they're doing that in a way that um, they're building curiosity, they're getting, they're understanding more about their own interests and then wanting to bring back that to school to, to learn more about it. So I think there's a real opportunity to hone in on career development and career support and skill building um, at earlier ages than we have been. So those are all um, a bunch of good things. And we just got time with our kids. Um, my kids are driving me nuts a little bit in the best possible way, but I am valuing those extra moments that I know I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. That's an yep. amen. I understand. My, my kids are definitely um, wanting a change on the skill building front because I've found all kinds of new projects for <laughs> <laughs> you know, creek banks to weed eat and wood to cut and all these things that, that I haven't been able to do for years that now got, got, that, that's our PE classes. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I know that um, you, you've got a very full plate and a very busy schedule and we appreciate your time with us, David. We've got one final question we always ask every mm -hmm. guest. So if you had Harry Potter's wand, Ooh, one day it could wave that wand to change anything in Tennessee education. Can't have more, more wishes, more wand waving. Everybody tries to pull that one. Can't do that. So one wave of the wand, you could do something in Tennessee. What would you do? Oh, that is a fantastic question. If I could wave my wand, I would want to make sure that every single child, regardless of where they lived, was able to have access to a pathway of opportunities that got them exactly where they needed to go when they graduated from high school. So if I wanted to be a teacher, which I always did, I would be able to have that hands-on learning and be able to have classes that would get me there. If I wanna be a doctor or a welder or a farmer. Um, and so I would wanna make sure that we, we get kids experiential learning that is driven and aligned to what they want to do and who they want to be. Um, it's the best possible thing um, to see a kid realize their dreams. And if we can create those pathways for them, I think that is something that would be just incredibly special to, to be a part of. Awesome. Great answer. That is a great answer. We got, a, we got a dime's worth of wisdom out of Peeney. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and do we need the drum like to do at the end of it? Come on. It's a blooming miracle I've waited this long to say that in the podcast. I, I know. I lost $20. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the bad. So, well, thank you for joining us on behalf you, of yes. Alan and Chris. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate talking with you and seeing you all. It's nice to see you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jerry Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. 
This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.